SideTrack is an ultra-portable USB monitor that attaches to the back of your laptop for a more productive workday, whether you are at home, at the office, in a coffee shop, or on the go. Anyone who works with two screens knows just how tedious multitasking and referencing documents can be on a laptop. SideTrack allows you to combine the portability of a laptop and the productivity of a dual monitor setup. Studies show that you are 24% more productive and can save four hours a week working with two screens. Imagine what you can accomplish with all that extra time. I seriously love the SideTrack portable monitor. I use it all the time. It's a must-have and super easy to use and set up. For 10% off, visit sidetrack.com slash discount slash greater than code. That's S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K dot com slash discount slash greater than code. everyone, welcome to episode 160 of Greater Than Code. I am Artemis Starr and excited to introduce my co-panelist, Jacob Stobel. Hello, and I'm here with Shante Thurman. Hola, Shante here. Hope everyone's doing well. So today our guest didn't show up. So we started thinking about what might we talk about today? And our conversation seemed to gravitate toward Twitter world, <laughs> the Twitterverse and the, the state of, you know, what's going on emotionally with these dynamics on Twitter. And so I thought maybe a good conversation was just to look at what's going on from all of our different perspectives, the things we see going on, the energy people are trading back and forth and talk about the thermodynamics of the Twitterverse. Ooh. Well, uh, can I go first? Because I, I I brought up earlier that I've been trying to do my best to stay off of Twitter and to, to like basically curate my timeline. But things are creeping in there today from like everything from all the political activity with the impeachment hearings and folks coming in from the, the Democratic candidates. And then I, I even see stuff. I mean, it's trans, trans Remembrance Day, Latina Equal Pay Day, all these different days. I can't keep up. So I feel like I, if I shut things down, I miss a lot. But then at the same time, if I get on there, I get sucked into vortexes. Yeah, they are like vortexes, right? They're like gravity yes. balls that suck you in. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to know what people do in order to like stay productive. Like, are how often are we going on to Twitter and for what purpose? And then like, is it actually helpful? I was wondering the exact same thing. Because it's a, it's a really good question. Like, I know that there are people that I really, really respect that are, I guess for lack of a better word, are engaging in activism on Twitter. And surely they're getting something out of it, right? Because these are not dumb people. They are, these are very smart people that wouldn't be doing it if they weren't getting something out of it. And the questions I'm always asking myself, like, what are they getting out of it? Because... Personally, and I, I'm very explicitly only speaking about myself, I am not sure that I'm getting anything positive out of Twitter these days. <laughs> I think Twitter is only taxing to me. And yeah, I wonder, I'm wondering the same thing. So 
Willem Larson was on our show not that long ago talking about the thermodynamics of emotion. I think it's a good way to look at it, of look at just, you know, what are the dynamics of human emotion? And one of the things that struck me that he said was that emotion is just movement. It's just energy. It's neither good nor bad. And what happens is that energy moves us and we can decide to shut that up energy down to try and control it. And we end up kind of boiling up like a pressure cooker when we try and hold on to that motion energy. We try and hold the motion. And then, you know, often end up blowing up in some sort of release valve way when that pressure becomes something we can't really contain. And so you see this kind of like thermodynamic sort of effects. And then there's like this layer facade of rationality (laughs) that oversits this emotional creature that we really are. And all of these dynamics you start to see, the emotions underlying our rational facades are suddenly very visible and dynamics of, you know, what is it that drives us to want to do these things, right? To want to speak in these ways. And one of the things you see is the identity narratives taking place and the type of reflections people give. So in my own journey, thinking a lot and learning a lot about just myself and identity. And, you know, I just had my 40th birthday not that long ago. And so I'm like, phase two of life, baby. (laughs) And, you know, as part of that, you know, it's like going through this existential trough of nihilism and and figuring out who you are and want to be on the other side. And I think a lot of the things in question right now are around identity narratives. I I, I read this book, Prometheus Rising, about these brain circuits and how they're sort of wired, these emotional empathetic feedback loops that we get into, that we're pulled into, and then been reading a lot of psychology stuff too. And, And one of the things that they talk about in that book, I don't know if I want to go here. It's something we should probably talk about like in an offline context that I'm just not like, how do we do this safely? Yeah, well, I think that's actually a great question and we could we could totally scratch it. The other thought here is just like, you know, how do we create these safe spaces so we can have conversations that are more emotionally um, deep and charged and places where we're a little uneasy, you know, like. Is it okay to have public conversations about our emotions? I think it is, but like we have to create the sort of we have to create the conditions in which it's a, it's an emotionally and psychologically safe place to do it. I think part of that safety is simply feeling like the people around you are on this your side that will give you the benefit of the doubt that you're speaking from your heart and trying to be a good person, even if you might stick your foot in the mouth, your mouth and it comes out sideways to, to be like, you know, we're all human. We're all learning how to talk. And I think that's one of the things I've learned a lot as I've tried to engage in conversations that are outside of my cultural norm, where I don't share like the context with people I'm engaging with. And I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to engage, I'm trying to listen, but it's not necessarily always received that way, especially when, you know, I don't say quite the right thing. It's the experience, you know, recently for me was trying to get involved with listening more to 
a lot of black women speakers and listening to that message, trying to understand and realizing I'm in the out group as a white woman. Mm-hmm. And at least in this context is like lots of hostility that I didn't really understand. And, oh, wow. And it was coming. Yeah. Did they, did they express it explicitly that they were, that there was some hostility or like the dynamics felt like hostility? Well, I think what happened was, I think it was defensive hostility that because my words were taken as an attack, even though I didn't mean it that way. And so it's like when hostility is defensive, is it really hostility? It's <laughs> mm. a great question. It's an awesome question. So I fell um, on my sword and apologized. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I teach um, with my company, The Darkest Horses, we focus on we talk a lot about radical inclusion and the reason why I like to start my model with radical inclusion for organizations and for people is just because we're talking about complicated intersectionalities, the way in which we identify the way, which we, the ways in which we show up in the world, which ultimately comes down to your worldview and what does your worldview consist of? Like the values and the beliefs and the things in which you were brought up with. And ultimately it has to do with culture, like the, the family culture, the societal culture, and like the class culture, uh, the racial and ethnic culture. So it gets complicated and it's very sticky. And I say to people, like, it's like the image of trying to separate fascia away from fat and muscle and bones. It's really tough to do that. And sometimes we're like successful in getting a piece of it out, but we can't. It's, It's all kind of interconnected. And I think, you know, it is meant to be uncomfortable. It actually is good that it is uncomfortable because that's when you know that you're challenging a worldview. Yeah. That's kind of one of those things that too, it's, I think it's really important to engage now in the conversation, even when it's hard. Cause you know, at the end of the day, if we're not all on this, on the same side as humans together and can have a shared conversation about our humanity, we got to be able to get there somehow. And we can shift to a place of trying to find someone to blame but that doesn't really get us anywhere new where we need to be. You know, we need collaboration. We need torch bearing. We need vision. We need radical inclusion to be made real, right? Not just this academic thing that we're arguing about on Twitter. We need it to be real. Yes, we, we totally do. Want to go back to something you said, you mentioned about like this over, I mean, I call it over identification over tribalism like this over-attachment to tribalism and tribalistic kind of ways of, of being in the world. And there's there's a lot of advantages of, like, understanding your identities and the complexities of them. But then I always tell people, too, like, if you're to the point of where you have to adhere to those and you're so strongly so fixated on them, you miss out on the beautiful opportunities we have as humanity to understand and to figure out, like, that we are way more alike than we truly are different. I mean... DNA, the DNA structure, how can we really argue with that genome? Like we're 99.9% the same. And, and race and culture is definitely socially constructed. Therefore, that means that it will change. Like our, our modern understanding of race and, race and ethnicity is simply our modern understanding of it. And, it. and historically, it's been different. And like what we consider a white person actually is not even, they're not even white. And the way that, that was created long ago was definitely based more on power 
and structural racism and um, things of that nature. So by fighting about it and arguing about it, we, we still uphold it. We still keep it in place. Yeah. And I, I think that's another aspect of what makes the conversations and stuff hard because there's this aspect of what you focus on grows and, yes. and by amplifying the attention to differences that are not the things we want to be divided by, we create spirals of the same thing that we're trying to avoid. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> and uh, as it pertains to like, the Twitterverse, right, you can get stuck in those spirals, those vortexes. <laughs> because one of the things I do, right, and I, and I always ask myself, Shantae, who is the one curating this Twitter feed? Is it me or somebody else? And, like, do I need to hop off this train? Because it's a freight train. And I, I try to be very mindful about creating these lists of people that I'm like, all right, if I want to go get this vibe, I go to this list. If I want to get out of that vortex, I go over here. And, but I, then I get stuck and I get sucked in and I forget. And I'm like, okay, the list thing really does work for me. Uh, it helps me to sort of change channels quickly if I need to. But I'm like, how many other people are doing this? And then I I just pay attention to folks who are on Twitter, as we mentioned, Jacob, like doing their, their activism, like their, their, their digital kind of form of activism. And then like, yeah, but you're just, you, we start to sort of retweet the same people we're comfortable with that we agree with, not necessarily people that we disagree with. And mm-hmm. based on the Twitter analytics and the ways in which they sort of feed that to us, I think it's more that you would get those comments and postings that maybe more or less go along with your worldview versus challenge your your worldview. Yeah. And I think the semantics of like a retweet and a like is pretty widely understood of like which tribe I'm putting myself in with, right? So retweeting someone that I, I, I at large disagree with, but they maybe made a good point that is at least worth engaging with is wouldn't be read as, as that, you know, like there's not a way to sort of signal boost, uh, nuance. It's true. How can we do that? <laughs> because, because like, I think the, the issue that I think we're, we're circling around is that like, we've got this sort of, sort of binary where we can sort of make a social network that's like very open, like, more or less Twitter is, and we get a lot of noise in the form of, well, bots or just people that are really looking to have a bad faith argument. Or we can, you know, there are other, you know, versions like, you know, I could have a Slack community uh, where you have to get a personal invite. And then that, that runs the risk of, you know, having a, of a bubble, right? And mm-hmm. like, how do we create, and I, I guarantee technology alone is not going to solve this problem. But like, how do you create a community where you're really filtering out bad faith actors, but you're really encouraging good faith uh, disagreements? Mm, such a good question. And I wish I had an answer, but I definitely don't. And I think you're right. It probably wouldn't be solved wholly by technology, you know? Well, if we think about technology as a tool for implementing the intention of humans like humans have some sort of intention of something that they're trying to do and software is just a tool and i think about what if we had this particular tool let's say we could make up anything and anything we thought of in software could be implemented let's just assume it's possible to 
Like if we could come up with a rule <laughs> that we could write code or some technology to do it. And I think framing it, like how we frame the problem, as soon as we end up in this mode of drawing a line of who are the people inside the circle and who are the people outside the circle, I think we get into a whole set of problems. And one of the things I read recently was about, you know, you talk about this tribal dynamics of this tribal gravity. And I was reading this thing about the higher the empathy toward tribal gravity, the higher correlation with active hostility, vindictive acts toward the outgroup. So the intensity of tribal bonding like affects both sides. And yet at the same time, these people are doing it from a standpoint of defensiveness of, I feel like I'm, I'm defending something like a mama bear. And so I don't really see how I'm being felt on the outside because mm-hmm. really in my heart is guardian loveness, right? And so we mm-hmm. go blind in very particular ways when we go into this kind of defensive mode. And so then you see this escalation of hostility on both sides when both people really feel hurt and attacked and they're like mama bear raging, right? Mm-hmm. And, yes. and it's blindness on both sides. And the only way to break that, I mean, that's essentially what we have to break is to see, hey, I'm a human that's hurting and you're a human that's hurting and we just need to stop this and like figure out how do we be on the same side? How do we root for team human together? Well, one thing that I've been reading a lot on Twitter is, and I, I really agree with this, is that um, oppressed people or people from oppressed groups have really do have a right to sort of like, just like you said, like have that sort of just mama bear rage, right? Like, so if I'm, if a trans person is being harassed online, they're not obligated to, or it's understandable that if they want to be, if they are going to be um, rageful about about that, right? And what I was thinking about is like, as a person who pretty much on every axis of identity, as a white man, I'm pretty much on the sort of like the power side of pretty much every identity. What I was thinking about is like, it's kind of my job, especially to do just what you were saying, Artie. Like, it's my job to not get mad and to try to, like, find the people who are receptive to a thoughtful dialogue and challenge them to think about these things a little bit more. Because there are other people that have had way too much crap <laughs> thrown at them. And it, it seems like it's, it's kind of my job to see if I can't carry a little bit more of the load you know? Yeah, I think, um, and I think it starts with one person. I mean, frankly, like we, sometimes when you think about it, like the grand scheme and like the macro versus the micro, you're like, oh, does does me changing and doing something different within the ways in which I am and being in the world, does that change? Actually, yes, it does. Because, you know, you have to start somewhere, truly. We can't wait for people who are in power to always be the ones to actually do the thing we need them to do. It's like that whole, I don't, I don't know the, the actual researcher who did this, but there's that notion like where you see a herd of deer, for instance, like they make a decision based on the 51st, like let's just say the, once it, the scales tip with the deer, which way to go. And it's not like there's one in particular that's going to decide it. It's like, the, it's like almost like they wait for that, like kind of the person or the, not the person, the deer 
that's going to tip the scales to the majority of them, and then they go that way. So every vote towards the yes or towards that evolutionary step does matter. And once you get to like a tipping point, we see things change. We see the tides turn. Yeah, I think nice. these tidal thermodynamics, though, are very much at the core of humans, too. It's just that we have this sort of rational brain that sits on top of the same sorts of instincts. But like if we're connected in our hearts as a pack, as a tribe, if we sink into that dynamic that is within all of us, we have the same capacity to have a sort of integrated empathetic feel and as people are all making decisions about which way to go to go with that sort of flow and when we're connected to our tribe and and our friends and we want our friends to like us and we want to be one of the friend pack the same kind of dynamics right of of to show support for your friends you go with the flow of your friends and so I mean I, I think there's that dynamic and then as we see people like I've cut ties with, you know, a number of people as I've kind of shifted into this mode of like, you know, I'm I'm gonna think for myself and have my own ideas and I couldn't handle the cynicism and sort of depressive coping. I see a lot of that these days where people get depressed, they lose hope, and then cynicism becomes a way to, to kick. Vindication becomes a way to kick. It's a way to vent the energy to make us feel better as, as validation is to validate this world that everything sucks, that validate this world that we're a victim. Mm. And so all of the reasons, all the things that we do become proof to validate our feelings. And that proof yeah. to validate our feelings is a way to vent that energy, to vent those particular thermodynamics of feeling crappy. And what I realized, though, is there's this completely other way that you can operate as opposed to being in victim mode, you can be in visioneering mode. And so instead, if you think about and imagine yourself, because our eyes were, we're always looking at where we are in the present through all of our experiences of our past. It's like we interpret it through our existing mind, heart, whatever you want to call it. Our existing sense is woven Mm -hmm. of our past And we see the present in terms of the rhymes of our past. And the other thing that affects us, though, is we see the rhymes of our dreams. And so if you make an active effort to imagine this vision of this person I want to be, imagine this identity of this person who I am and how I'm going to behave and act with my friends and like really visualize and dream all of that up. Think about this person you're going to be inside that's, you know, all happy and great and everything is good, whatever it's going to be. And if you wake up in the morning and you live in that dream, you really believe and say, I am all of these things. You completely shift modes to operating out of your own life source, making your own reality, creating and manifesting your own dreams and shift from this mode of victimhood to this mode of maker. And then you become one of those gravity balls that sucks everyone into your you know, reality because you're creating space. And I mean, I think ultimately as a leader, that's really what leadership is all about is creating space. So like the directory mm. of cool people dot love thing, what I was doing with that is creating a space with a definition that people could engage in, a new set of rules of engagement, that if you're up for these rules of engagement, 
join the circle. And then everyone knows that everyone else in the circle has opted to the same rules and you can create a new thing just by creating the space for it. And as an individual, I can make space. Yes. Oh yeah, totally. I, I agree with all of that. That was lovely. That was awesome. So is the idea sort of like, let's make a space where the people that opt in are the ones that we wanted anyway? Would you characterize it as that? I think part of the problem is making it about the people, trying to to keep some people in and some people out. Instead, saying these are the behaviors of thriving. And, you know, the reason I named it directory of cool people, because then you've got cool people gravity, right? If you want to be one of the cool people <laughs> with all the other cool people in the circle, you play with the cool people's rules. And so what, what, what does the gate look like of what it means to be a cool person? And then everyone's invited. You can be cool if you want to be cool, right? We all have the option to be cool. We all have the choice to be cool at any time. You know, you look at the reasons people mama bear rage and lash out and, you know, even, you know, we have these huge problems in the world because we got a billion people that are starving. (laughs) You know, I mean, like the amount of suffering that happens is insane, right? And we all have suffering though. You know, we all have different sorts of suffering and get sucked into our own worlds and don't necessarily have the capacity to handle other people's suffering when we're suffering ourselves, right? And, you know, at the same time, we all have that power to shift from our own victimhood to shifting to a mode of maker, to shifting to a mode of creating our reality, to shifting to that mode of believing. That power is within all of us too. Yes. Uh, and the thing I was going to say, the thing that came to my mind was like, when Jacob and you just asked that question, was because of, when I'm thinking of thermodynamics of things, like the energy, right? That like energy is always there, never is really destroyed or dies. Like, uh, if, if we're thinking about cre- creating circles where people are are making space and, and coming together, like, it could be that the frequency, so, like, every week, for instance, like, if we were to gather, our frequencies would slightly be different than the week before. And it, it sometimes it's about, like, it's about attracting people with the right frequency, and then, therefore, when people are ready to get into that frequency or that vibe, they do show up, and they're, it's available for them to join. Rather than saying like, oh, you're you're not you're not the kind of person. Like, well, are we on the same wavelength today? Are we not necessarily? How do you say it? we're we're like we're, we're complementary? But that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it. Like, do we fit today? <laughs> are we are we, you know what I'm saying? Like, are we going to mesh well? Are we going to be able to form, put our energies together, and like make a better, bigger energy? And sometimes it's, the answer is no. That's how I look at things like that. And some days it's easier to flow with someone else. And other days it's like, I need to be my own rigid shape today. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not going to flow with you. (laughs) I'm going to go be rigid and go over here, (laughs) you know? And that's totally okay too. I mean, I think we all need to be able to create space for ourselves too, to like make our own little bubble with our own little world reality of what, you know, the only reality we have is like, you know, within ourselves. It's all we yeah. actually experience. Exactly, right? And that's a whole nother episode. With the, <laughs> oh my gosh, I would love to talk about that. Like, what's reality? It's like, oh. What is reality? Do you have time? <laughs> Let's get into this. 
But totally. I, I agree. I, I don't even think that people should. I think people should always be taking time out to get away from the larger group and to work on their energy and their thermodynamics of themselves to figure out if that's good for the collective. I think these two things are very connected because if you look at what are the motivations behind call out culture, essentially, of being in a hard place and feeling better via calling others out that are the people that you see, you know, causing harm. And generally, the way this calling out is done is via some sort of identity labeling. You are a fill in the blank, right? And, you know, there's plenty of vocab going around (laughs) of Mm -hmm. identity labels that people don't want to wear, basically. And so what happens when somebody slams an identity label on something that you that is hurtful, right? The next thing you do when you when someone puts a hurtful label on it is you, you know, cower up in defense and you know some people will go to mama rage mode when, you know, you hit your you hit your limit and you can't hold it in and people mm-hmm. need to explode in some sort of way. And the more we throw these daggers, <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, the more that amplifies because and then you kind of look back and go, is this really where we want to go? Are the actions we're taking actually leading us closer to a place where we want to be or taking us further away from it? And I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's where it really comes down to of like, we might feel better in the moment by going, I'm not one of those, but you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Makes us feel better. Makes us feel like we did our duty. But what, it, what, what are the thermodynamics that we actually caused in the world? What's the energy we're throwing out there, right? Are we throwing rainbows? Are we pulling people into a happy space? Are we being out there being supportive friends to the people that are having a hard time? You know, it's totally yeah. different. We can, we can throw branches out, right? We can see right. the people suffering. We can see the people we're celebrating and, you know, cheer them on. I mean, there's so many other sorts of energy we can put out into the world that is not... I feel better by cutting you down. And I mean, that's kind of where we're at in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There's a um, really great phrase that I think is used in some, in some uh, social justice circles um, called calling in, which is... I love this one. This is a good one. Okay. Let's talk about it. Talk about it. Okay. So the, the, my understanding is like, so calling out is... There's a really great podcast on Invisibilia. I'll put it in the show notes um, about call outs which are, um, they're really good back to sort of this very um, ancient community practice of shunning, which is basically we are protecting the community by throwing you out. You're out. We need to protect ourselves. And calling in is basically the idea like where you approach the offending person and you let them know that you care about them and you also care about your community And what you do is you draw a line around your community that defines it and says, these are our boundaries. And look, you are on the wrong side of it. And it's very important to me that you be with us on the right side of these boundaries. And that makes it really clear both to the rest of the community and also the person who has maybe done something that's not great or worse, that it's important that they come, that they, that they come and make right. But that you want to see them do that. You're making it clear that you're, you're not interested in uh, shunning them just for the sake of making yourself feel better. You're, you're showing them this is how you can make right. I like it. I'm just thinking about yep. this situation that I mentioned recently that, you know, because I, I wanted to make right, 
you know, mm-hmm. and ha- had someone reached out to me in that way, it would have been a very different conversation because I definitely had the motivation. I did what, you know, what I could of my own accord with respect to, you know, apologizing and trying to listen and things. Right. But, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's like one of those things where and at the same time, those sort of things you got to kind of take in as a learning experience too. And go, okay. So this conversation went a little south. I understand why. And I learned some things. And the next time I have one of these conversations, I will be much more aware of how the things I say might be interpreted. Because it's when you're outside of a different culture, there's all sorts of things you don't realize. Um, um, I have a friend in, in Africa I've been talking to of just, we were talking about birthday celebrations and like death rituals, like funerals. And realize there's like totally opposite taboos around life after death that are opposite of one another. So in one case, if your belief is after you die that your spirit, you know, moves on and should be left to rest and celebrations of remembrance basically are taboo in the, you know, we don't want to wake the spirits. We want to let them sleep and do their thing, right? (laughs) And yet you know, we've got opposite traditions of that to forget people completely is to let them die, right? To let their memory die. And so you end up with these opposite rituals, opposite cultures, opposite taboos, opposite beliefs. And the radical inclusion is to learn to see these sorts of things and to still be able to go, hey, I'm a human, you're a human. We have some different ideas about these things and both things that are very important to us. But I can still see your humanity. You know, I can still see you as a person too, even if you think upside down of me. Isn't that fascinating that you think upside down of me, right? Right. Yeah, totally. And and this is why I'm like, oh, so two things came to mind that the calling in reminded me so much more, like so much of that part that I practice that I would call like meta, you know, where you have the loving kindness and compassion for people and for yourself to know that like calling in is like trying to get somebody who's maybe strayed away from, from the greater humanity to be like, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of going out there a little bit, come back in here so that we can all sort of understand and sympathize and empathize that we might all have these kind of like feelings and that that that's what makes us human. And then the other part of it was just that when you were saying this, it's like, yes, and recognizing that we definitely have like our own, those that worldview and the culture is like, right, when it comes down even to life and death, literally how we, how we those realities that are socially constructed, by the way, right, um, of like, <laughs> what is it to be alive? What is it to be dead? And we learned that it's, it's indoctrinated into us before we're ever even born. And the part of it is just to remember that, like, I think the biggest lesson is to be like, you're a human, like, in this lifetime, in this, you know, you're here in this body to experience life as a human, which is like a spectrum of emotion and experience. What does that mean for you and for humanity? You're in this body to experience life as a human. Right? Like, you're here to experience, like, and people could say, well, you know, if they believe in reincarnation, it's like, great, but right now, in this lifetime, right now, how how I know you is as a human. You're not a squirrel, you're not an elephant, you're not a shark, you're a human. What does it actually mean to be a human? Yeah, that's kind of where we're at in history right now, though, too, of just Mm -hmm. this time where we've got all this connectivity, right? To be able to see one another in the world right now and 
to be connected to the degree that we are connected across the globe is crazy. And it's a forcing function right now for us to evolve, to see Mm -hmm. all these spirals that we're creating, to be able to go, you know what? I'm a human, you're a human, we're humans too. And like, <laughs> and the thing is, is though there are problems that are legit hard. And it's not like I don't get scarcity and all the mindsets and stuff that come with that. And this is why I kind of, I look at the tremendous privilege that I have in my lifetime as a human. And I look at all the people that don't have that and I'm in a position to actually do something, I want to spend my volts on what I can to make the world a better place while I'm here. I think that's really important right now that the people that can lead do. Touche. Touche, which is sort of, this is a nice, maybe a segue to, to remind us like the show, Greater Than Code, and that it's, after all, it's like it's the humans, it's the humanity in us that's creating the code. So we have the ability to create a physical and metaphysical world with the lift of technology right now. That's amazing. That's a, at least this is this is like we're heading so close. We already we already almost are at the singularity. Yeah. Um, at least we know in this modern version of history, we're pretty close to it. It's an exciting time to be alive, huh? It is. <laughs> or even to be dead. <laughs> They've got ways to uh, bring you back. (laughs) They've got lots of ways, holograms and everything. (laughs) Yeah, the world is going to get a whole lot crazier. And this is why, too, like, you know, I look at all the things that are happening. And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to our choice of what type Mm -hmm. of future we want, what type of reality we want to be in and building the type of world that we want with our power of taking responsibility, of owning that power and leading the world in a direction of radical inclusion of all. And how do we, how do we just look at that as a problem to solve as technologists, as leaders and create space, create space for those innovations to happen? That's a question that we, I want to hear. I would love to hear like, the listeners to weigh in on that too. That's a great question. Me too. Thank you for that. Should we wrap it up? I what feel like we should. That was like a, a good note. <laughs> that was. I'm like, I don't think we can say anything else after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we do a reflection? Sure. Let's do that. I really like that. Hey, you know, thinking about synchronicity and, the ways in which things happen. It's kind of nice that our guests didn't show up for this one. I think this is a great conversation that I wasn't necessarily planning on having, but I needed more than I realized. So I'm glad that we made it happen. I'm, I'm really just thinking about this trick of like how we, we like make communities of people that can have difficult conversations, but also find ways to draw like clear boundaries about you know, trans people are people and exist. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that there are certain boundaries that need to be respected and, like, are not up for debate, but that there's surely a lot of other things that we can sort of have a space to have a debate about. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm really thinking about what those boundaries are and what how, how that balance gets struck. 
I want to say something really quick to tag on to that. I love that you said that. And what, what came to my mind just immediately is just this like, wow, if we're at this place where we have the ability to really build a future that we all want and desire as humans, the kind of the, the difference in the shift could be that like the more diverse architectural kind of army of people we have building this next frontier of humanity is with all those li- with all those diverse experiences of being a human that means we have all the more you know chance of, of making this world so much cooler because the people who built the modern world the problem was is that they were so much alike and so it wasn't that they that they missed out on like it, well it wasn't they missed out on other people's versions of humanity and reality like because it, it, trans people have always existed, but it's just that the, the people who are building the world didn't actually notice or see them or acknowledge them. Yeah. 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 Just to add on to that too, the thing I'm seeing now is how much our connectivity is an opportunity to see our diversity, to see all the strength and power and creative coolness of one another. And if we can come together in shared conversation, in shared space about what type of world we want. What is that vision that we can craft together and really kickstart an effort to build the thing? I mean, this is an opportunity to invite the world to a a conversation, right? There's no reason why this can't be a thing that we make happen together. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone is invited. Everyone's invited. 